I'm Walter Isaacson, and um, we have a nice crowd. This is good. And this is a highly personal panel for me, so I appreciate you showing up. We put it late in the afternoon. It wasn't supposed to conflict with anything else. But I'm going to actually start off talking a bit, because for me, this panel came out of some experiences that I care very deeply about. First of all, I want to introduce Mike Bezos in the very back, who's looking stunned and dismayed. But the Bezos family scholars are not only the great scholars here, but they promoted with Lisa Consiglio, who will stand up in a second and be very distinctive when she does, because she's quite tall. There she is. Who runs the Writers Program. Started this Writers Swap and with the Haiti New Orleans Writers Swap. And concurrently with that, I was wandering down to New Orleans. New Orleans is my hometown. I go down as often as I can, many times a year, especially after Katrina. And one of the things that happened by Katrina is a lot of silver linings. Uh, in fact, it was Troy who said last time I saw him that Hurricane Katrina was actually really good for the school systems of New Orleans. What it did, it washed away one of the worst school systems in the nation and allowed us to say, instead of just rebuilding the city, let's make it better. Let's revitalize it. And so what we did in New Orleans is took one of the worst school systems with the, you know, people, 70% of people below grade level in math and reading and said, how would you create a new school system that really tried to work. And one thing we did is we said, uh, I, I, I happen to be on the board of Teach for America. We had 250 core members for Teach for America down there. But when it, that semester was wiped out in September after the levees broke, um, we went down there and said to the 250 core members, we will place you anywhere else, Houston, Dallas, Baton Rouge, where we have programs, the Delta Country of Mississippi. I saw... Uh, the Boxdales here, they thank you for the Delta Country Mississippi and Teach for America. All 250 decided to stay in New Orleans and rebuild the school system. And they did so by creating charter schools, and now in which 65% of the kids in New Orleans schools are in charter schools, which means people have come down and said, let's create and prove the best type of school systems we have. KIPP Academy came in, started by two Teach for America core alumni. And not only are there charter schools, but there's competition. Troy, who you'll meet in a moment, he and I have been dealing with it earlier today. We dealt with it last time. He's being, uh, trying to make the decision of whether or not he's going to go to the Science and Math Charter Academy, which is one of the schools started by uh, some of the great uh, charter school ed reformers around, or stay in Gentilly High School, which is a really cool, new, wonderful building, but, you know, has different academic things. The fact that, and people sometimes say to me, well, if you do that, only the best parents and the rich parents, and they'll figure out how to game the system. But when you watch Waiting for Superman tonight, you'll see how important it is to give kids choice. And you'll realize that a kid like Troy, when he has a choice, is actually smart enough to figure out, I want to do what's best for me, my community, whatever. And so let's not think that choice is something that only those of us in nice suburbs or with private school educations can possibly want. Choice is something that anybody from Troy to all nine or ten of your friends or people in college track can really help. And that helps a competition in New Orleans amongst the schools. The reason that competition is particularly good is there are some, certainly some things that are totally insane that we do 
in our schools. First of all, we put them in really bad buildings. Gentilly High is a pretty cool building these days because it's competing with people. Secondly, dumping people on the streets at three in the afternoon is, is just insane. If you want to have a great school system, people should stay till 6 or 7 p.m. or have after-school programs or whatever. Uh, now there's a competition because the math and uh, science uh, charter that you're thinking of works until 6.30 p.m. You'll meet Lorene uh, Powell in a minute, but groups like College Track provide ways that you can use those after-school hours. But anyway, when there is competition, you do get each school saying, if I want to get Troy, if the money's going to follow the pupil, if I'm going to be a successful school, I've got to stay open later, I've got to get the sc scores up right, I've got to find great after-school programs, I've got to stay open longer during the year so that I can bring the best students involved. Um, a few people I want to quickly introduce as part of this process. I did do Lisa Consiglio. That writer's program in Aspen is uh, basically found somebody like Troy who had been trying to write and worked with him and about 12 other kids. So while I'm wandering in New Orleans with Lorene, who had started College Track, we go to Gentilly High School, we see things, and we finally go to the science and math charter school we're talking about, still in FEMA trailers, and who's there, because I knew she would be, but Lisa Consiglio sitting there with the students uh, in New Orleans writing stories that they're going to swap under the Bezos programs with the kids from Haiti. You'll see some of that. When is it? A couple nights from... Friday night at 8.30, St. Regis Hotel. Some of um, the other uh, friends from the program, some of Troy's friends are there, but we have some of the kids from Haiti, and we're going to do the story swap, so put that on your calendar. Also, Shudrin, I'd like to introduce you, uh, runs College Track down in New Orleans, and I hope you're now working with Teach for America. We're trying to get all those things. Good, with Kira. Good. I'm really pleased. Anyway, I've done far too much of an introduction, but I wanted to show you why this is something that we have to do if we're going to transform America. All these other ideas are just gravy compared to the fact that K-12 through education has got to work. And one of the things that struck me is I was down there with Lorene, who I'll introduce in a minute. Actually, let me introduce them all. Lorene Powell started College Track, so she brought me down to New Orleans. College Track is one of those great ed reform things that says, and she'll explain it later, and I just picked up, he's not even on the program, but somebody from my old shop from Time Magazine, Stephen Gray. Stephen was writing about New Orleans and Detroit, but I discovered earlier this week that Stephen grew up in the same Lower Ninth Ward neighborhood as Troy and deeply cares about New Orleans, goes back there often as well, even though you're now based in Detroit for time. So we're going to make you into a mentor for some of these kids as well. Having said all that, I want to turn to Troy who just flew in from a 4 a.m. flight from New Orleans, and your other friends are napping, right? But, you're, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you knew you had to be on a panel. First of all, I'll just ask you a few questions. Tell me what happened on the day of Katrina, because you, your parents won't, you know, you, you weren't really living with your parents then, and you had to fend for yourself, right? Yeah. Um, that day, um, during Hurricane Katrina, I was um, with my cousin, you know, and, you know, I... I was catching chickens, <laughs> you know, because we um, really didn't do anything. And, um, we tried to stay out of trouble the best way we can, which we did still, you know, out of people's backyard and stuff like that and stole out of the cages. So um, that day when Hurricane Katrina came, my mother and my family left me. And, you know, I was wondering where they were, but 
I didn't know. So what I did was I you went were 12, with my, right? Yeah, I was 12 years old. And that time I went with my cousin, you know, my two cousins. My cousins was um, my uncle's sons. So I went with them and I met up with my uncle um, around the St. Bernard Project. They went with their family and I met with my uncle. And my uncle was telling me where my family was, but I didn't go right away. So we went up to the third floor in the abandoned building in the St. Bernard Projects. And after that, Hurricane Katrina came and during that time, I really didn't think anything. I really didn't care about I died or not because I couldn't read or write. I mean, I was neglected. Nobody really didn't care for me at all. I had to take care of myself. And I looked at it that, you know, I'll never be nothing anyway. I'm always a failure. And I was put down by so many students who took my, um, well, actually, like, I still remember this day when the teacher put my report card on the desk and, you know, I was trying to ball it up. But the students just came and tried to grab it out of my hand, and it was just talking about me, ribbing me, and stuff like that. And I sat up there, and I cried. And what I did was I got up, and I got angry. So I started swinging at all of them because so, they made me mad. And um, after that, um, during that time, Hurricane Katrina, I was breaking into stores right along with my uncle and them, and I was hearing gunshots, and, you know, I was seeing dead bodies floating. And, you know, one of my uncles liked to drown because what we was doing – I was getting cigarettes. What I put in my story, I was getting cigarettes for me and him. And he went around another way, and he almost liked the drone until he got saved. But the cigarettes fell out of his pocket. Good thing I had some. And <laughs> I, I, was, I was a smoker, and I smoked weed. And I was introduced to, uh, yeah, I was introduced, um, to smoking marijuana when I was 11 years old. So I've been doing it. And I, I was a tap dancer in the French quarters. That's how I made money. Did I say that already? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, I was running from the police, and I was going to jail in and out, in and out, in and out. And my mama had to come pick me up. And sometimes, you know, I stood there because I was so, I guess, I don't call myself dumb, but I was so lost at the moment. I didn't even know my home number. I didn't know my parents' number. I didn't, miss, I didn't know anything. So I stood in jail for, like, Eight days. And what, what happened was my friend, he left me. And he said, man, I'm going to try to, you know, um, tell my mama, tell your mama, come pick you up. And so, you know, he didn't, he didn't really go do that. So they really couldn't find me. I was missing. So after that, you know, I've been to jail and stuff like that, and I've been smoking weed. During Hurricane Katrina, we went onto the bridge, and I was seeing people covered in um, sheets because so many people was dying and little children was dying. And, you know, I think newborn's baby was um, being born on the bridge, and it was so hot, everybody was running back and forth, back and forth for water, and they had people selling water for $5. And I was like, you know, that's a shame because um, you're so greedy for money, you can't spend it. And during that time, you know, um, we had, well, this one man, my uncle was telling me about, he went so crazy, and, you know, he was standing on the cliff of the bridge, and what he did was he fell back. But before he fell back, my uncle told him, don't do it, man. Just chill out. Calm down. Calm down. This man literally fell back and died. And they had some old people just crying and crying, and some old people just um, jumping off the bridge for no reason and stuff like that. So um, after that, I went to Lafayette with my auntie, and I stood there for a little while, and I was, I guess, yeah, my mama knew where I was. That, that, yeah, she, she knew I was with my auntie. And after that, I went to Texas. And when I went to Texas, um, I started going to school. When I was going to school, I met these um, people, Miss Bliss, Mr. Bird, Mr. Oxton, and Miss Cummins. And 
what they did was, well, I was um, a moneymaker, and I really, went, I really didn't go to school all the time. And what I did was I hollered at the girls a lot, and I liked talking to them. And I like, you know, that's what I like doing. But they didn't know I could read or write. So what they did was they um, found out that I couldn't read or write, but the girls this didn't This is knew. a KIPP Academy that they put you in probably in Texas, yeah. right? And I think some of you know KIPP is this new, the greatest charter schools. And basically, they discover there that how many words do you know to read or write at age 12? Like dog or cat. Dog and cat. I read. Couldn't you spell that? And you tried to hide the fact you didn't know how to read, right? Yeah. And, and I, this was a failure of our school systems, basically, where you can be age 12 and still don't read. Mm-hmm. And be passed out. Passed out, yeah. Each grade. So you're at the KIPP Academy finally in Texas. They find out you don't know how to read or write. And, and you know, they taught me, around that time I was 13, they taught me I was on the first and second grade reading level. And what I did was I went back, you know, to um, New Orleans and I was doing the same old thing. And I had dreads and I was just running after the girls. I was just um, not worrying about school and I was just playing around. I didn't want to listen at all. And, um, Were you on your own? Did no. you go back on your own? No, I um, went with my uncle. So during that time, I was going to Joan Dibert, and um, I still couldn't read or write, and he tried to help me and teach me, but I, I didn't you know, want nobody in my business. I said, get on my face. You know, that's how I felt about it. You know, if I said it, get on my face. You don't have to tell me anything. I, already, I don't want it. And sometimes I did want it. I just felt too ashamed that I was too old. So people was already putting me down. Grown people was laughing at me. And, you know, the security guards, I know the police, I still remember in the jail cell, they was asking, you don't know your mama number? You don't, you don't know it? You stupid or something? You illiterate? They was talking to me bad. And I, I can't see how they can talk to a child like that. And it was really telling me this in my face. And what I did was I cried. I cried, and I was so hurt. But, you know, um, I'm sorry I skipped the part, but, you know, before Hurricane Katrina, when I was 11, I was praying to God. I prayed to God, and I asked God, help me, you know, but he never did answer my prayers. And after that, you know, I really stopped praying. And I was off and on, off and on. And, you know, um, when I came back, I went to Drew. And, you know, I was thinking to myself. Um, Drew's a uh, middle school. Middle school. And I was in eighth grade. I was in eighth grade. I got to eighth grade because I skipped the grade when I came back. And I should never did that. I'm so <laughs> for real. But what I did, I, I try to... I try to keep up with um, my cousin, and I try to keep up with the people. Now you want you know them to know that I was dumb and I couldn't read or write, so that's what I did. And after that, I was um, thinking about um, change, and um, I think I, I put it in my eye movie um, called "I Am What I Learned" by Charles Simon, and I talk about a part where this lady stopped me um, right on Decatur Street. I was tap dancing with my friend D'Angelo, and we was walking towards Bourbon, and the lady stopped me and told me. Um, my name and told me all about my family members and told me what I was getting myself into. And around that time, I was already carrying guns. I was already going clubbing and stuff like that. And I was selling weed. And so it was getting like worse and worse and worse. And my mama, she got three checks from my own brother's sisters, my two sisters and two, my one brother. And she didn't give me anything out of the check. I didn't see my mama like, well, I didn't see my mama at all. She just came down just sometimes, and I didn't see her at all, and she really didn't pay no mind to me. So during that time, the lady was telling me about my mama. She was telling me about me. She was telling me what I'm going to do and how I'm going to die. She was saying that I'm not going to live that long. I'm about to die soon because what I was getting myself into, 
I felt like I need to start jacking people now because I was already jacking purses on bourbon. I was already a thief. And people looked at me anyway because I'm black. And so, but during that time, the lady was telling me all that and she was telling me that I need to make a change. My grandma and my father won't see the change, but it's up to me. And he said, um, if I don't change, I'm going to be in jail for life. Uh, I'm going to be dead soon. He said, but if you do change, God wants you to change. He said he's going to show you a whole new part of life. And, you know, what I did was I thought on what she said. And I walked off, and I never seen this lady never again in my life. And, you know, I was still going tap dancing as I was thinking. But what I did was I stopped hanging with my friends, stopped being with the girls. I finally made a decision to change my life. And on New Year's Eve, I did that, um, 2007, going to 2008. I did that, and I turned my life over to God. And that's when I started going back to school, telling my teacher I'm sorry, and, you know, telling my teacher that I, I, I want to do right. I, I don't, I don't want to be a failure no more. I, I don't want to be this way no more. And what they did was they really helped me. But it didn't stop, it didn't stop there. So I got into college track. My counselor, Miss Bowie, told me about it, and I got into college track. And I was going to Clark, and I was having, like, good grades. College track really helped me. And I'm really glad I met with Miss Burnside and went to college track. And during that time, I came from Clark, and I, you know, was the school president on the subpack committee on the PAC. I had students looking up to me and wanting to change, and students was telling me, you know, I wish I was you because you're so powerful, man, and you're so touching, and you just, you're younger than me, and you know so much at a young age, and I'm really shocked at this, and, you know, they was all crowding me by the table, the table about, like, well, really longer than this, and they'll all come sit by me, like I'm some kind of magnet or something, and they'll, like, talk to me and ask me questions about, you know, life, and I'll tell them and give them an answer, and they really start to change, and that's and when I... you started writing as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I started writing. I started writing in this There's journal. There's a great story you did on this whole process. It's just very moving. Yeah, I forgot that part. <laughs> oh. Hey, you're here because of the Writers' Conference. You've got to give them a plug. <laughs> oh, man. It's a beautiful story that got published. Let me, by the way, let me turn to uh, Ms. Powell, if you don't mind, because it is that part where you get rescued at a time when most people, including here at the Ideas Festival, would say, it's hopeless. You can't rescue kids once they get to this point. Lorraine? Yes, I think there are plenty of well-meaning researchers who feel that given any, given, you know, any metric, it's too late after first grade, it's too late after third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, eighth grade, any inflection point uh, in education, there are plenty of people who say, you know, it's too late to reach students. Uh, but we don't believe that, obviously. I just, Troy's an extraordinary example of how that's not true How many kids do you have in New Orleans? We have uh, 150. Yeah, 150. And tell us what College Track does. So I'll tell you what we do. Uh, we believe that IQ and talent is distributed across the population evenly, but opportunity is not. And so we wanted to be a portal of opportunity for students like Troy and a thousand others who have this fire in their belly, this belief that education is going to be their avenue to opportunity. So uh, we select and recruit students in the eighth grade, and they pledge to stay all the way through college graduation uh, and we pledge 
to make them college ready and college success uh, if they give us all the time that we require from them. And what is that time? What do you do? Well, how much time do you spend at College Track? Probably almost every day from 3 until 8. We're open every day 3 to 8 all summer. Uh, we, we have intense academic support, um, and it depends on where any one student is academically. We, we tailor the academic program to them. But then we have leadership opportunities and art and expression opportunities. Uh, we have uh, iMovie or, or video storytelling. We have um, public radio storytelling. We have uh, dance and uh, art outings. We go to uh, extraordinary public events so that students get... But, you know, you also do something we were talking about before, and Kathy, mm-hmm. my wife and I have talked about it, which is some people from our you know, neck of the woods. We have parents that totally know how to help you with the college application, how to, you know, download it, how to bring you to a hotel, how to navigate the world of getting into college. And I've seen you do a lot of that. Well, yes, we do eventually. But when when they come in as eighth graders, uh, in order for students to be seriously college ready and not require remediation when they go to college, uh, which is a large percentage of California graduates, um, we have to do a lot of uh, social, emotional, and academic support building. And then senior year, every student that stays with our program, if they, if they do what we say, and every student generally does because they're very motivated, uh, they will be ready for a four-year university, and then we have a very intense one-on-one college advising. You know, it's a, it's a 20-week program senior year that starts kind of July, August with the writing workshop. And we take them through, you know, that whole process, including financial aid. So it's a very, very comprehensive and longitudinal partnership. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to college? Xavier. Xavier? Yeah. Uh, my friend, Dr. Francis. Great yeah. university. And your friend, James, who is here, Where's he going to go, you think? Oh, he's going to go to Harvard. Good. Harvard well, that's not University. bad. Not bad. Steve, I don't mean to put you on the spot. It's just I ran into you, and you're from New Orleans. I figured yeah. I'd get you up here and drag you up. Do you have a question or an answer or anything you wanted to say? And we'll... uh, You know, I mean, it's, it, there, is, there were definitely a number of silver linings in Katrina. Um, I mean, it was almost like a cleansing. In, in many ways. Um, I basically pushed my editors within a day or two of the levees breaking uh, to go back to New Orleans um, to write about people who saw the storm as a chance to escape poverty. And I felt like at the time that was the theme that was really missing in a lot of the national coverage. And so I went to um, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, went to a Red Cross shelter and randomly found a woman who um, was the mother of six kids who had been separated from, from her kids. She didn't know where they were for a variety of reasons we later found out. And uh, basically she, you know, she took a piece of paper off a bulletin board where some family in, in Montevideo, Minnesota, population 3,300, as white as you can get, um, said, you know, we want to take a mother and a, and a kid or two into our house, right? And so she takes this woman in the world, or in Baton Rouge at that point, takes this piece of paper, calls this family in Minnesota, says, you know, I don't have one kid. I don't have two kids. I got six kids, plus my mom. You know, will you take us in? And this family immediately says, yeah. And so we write a story. Uh, I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time. I write a story um, about this woman's path or, or her efforts to get to Minnesota. People across the country wrote checks, right? Sent toys and, and just 
open up their hearts um, and made it happen, like made, made, it, made it possible for this family to get to um, this small town in Minnesota. But the bigger point is the kids were failing miserably in the school system in New Orleans for a variety of reasons. But the second that they got to Minnesota in this small town, they encountered teachers that had the audacity to actually expect them to succeed and made it, made it happen, right? And so one of the girls just graduated at the top of her class, right? And that would never have happened had she stayed in New Orleans, right? So this is, you know, I don't know, I don't know, the, but the, the, I guess my bigger point is that there's some silver linings that came out. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't exactly right. recommend a hurricane, but, but right. seriously, right. it was the best thing to happen to the school system of New Orleans. And we could have blown it if we had said, let's just replicate the old one. Tell me, Troy, the difference between the schools you went to before Katrina and then eventually when the school system got back up and running a year or so later. Uh, uh, the teachers, they wasn't paying attention to me. They was, I mean, they wasn't really focused on students. They was sometimes putting them down, like, I got my education, get yours. And, you know, that's really rude to say that to a student. And they used to let you wonder, oh, they didn't care. Great. But, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, I came back, not soon as I came back, but it started getting better and better and better. And teachers just came up to me and was asking me questions. Do I need this? Do I need that? And it was just helping me. And that greater than Tilly, it was doing a lot of that. And I mean, you know, some students who um, kind of got angry at them, mad at them, and cursed them out and fussed with them, they still was helping them. And, you know, looking at where I came from, I passed the leap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I passed the leap. You believe that? Leap and- is in Louisiana. <laughs> Louisiana Assessment of Education Progress, which is basically the NEEP national standardized (laughs) test. And basically, like 15, I don't know if you remember, Stephen, but 20% at most were passing LEAP test before Katrina, and you passed. Yeah, and I I don't, well, Katrina, thanks. Um, (laughs) Well, it, 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 like, helped me, and the school system has got, it, it have, it's gotten better. Uh, I'm glad. Well, Walter, I think you know, we're not going to have hurricanes across every urban center, but we could have metaphorical hurricanes whereby communities come together and address the human capital pipeline and the governance pipeline and the structural pipeline and really, you know, I think, wipe our expectations and our mindsets clean and start rebuilding because right now, as a country, we can't afford to not graduate half of our African-American and Latino students across the country. That's what's going on in high schools. And the ones who do graduate, only 10% of them are eligible to apply to four-year college in general. So this is, it's, it's not a sustainable model for our country. And so we need to have some galvanizing force that comes through and... It, and Let's, let's just hope, hope that a lot of the ed reform yeah. movement is that galvanizing force. Uh, how much did it cost per student in college track? 5000 per year yeah. per student. So somebody you know extraordinarily well said to me, that's a lot of money. Is that sustainable? 5000 a year. Can it scale? And I was thinking, all right, I know Troy. I know what Troy would give to society for having been taken from college, from by college track, and what it would cost society. And I don't mean to just pick up, but there's a, you know, just say a thousand. Mm-hmm. Five thousand a year, I know we keep saying we're in a budget deficit, but it's insane the amount 
that this actually benefits society, not costs society, to put somebody into college rather than let you continue what you were doing. Of course. Yeah. I, I mean, what is more insane, spending $40,000 a year to incarcerate someone who wasn't educated or $5,000 a year to make sure that somebody can actually be a super productive member of society? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the differential between a high school dropout and a college graduate is approximately a million dollars in lifetime earnings. Correct. Yeah, that's So you're going to divide payout. that by 20 I, or 30 and you still get to... <laughs> So, Troy, anyway, you, you did a movie, which I never saw because I'm not a, as good of a movie buff, and you wrote a story. Tell us about that. How did that come about? Oh, the, the, our movie, I, I did it at Greatest Antilly. The, the lady, Miss Lauren, Miss Lauren Tilton, yeah, she came up, well, she was asking a lot of students. She said, um, do you, is you, um, are you interested in doing a movie? And the students were like, nah, I'm, I'm all right, I'm all right. And, you know, they was asking, I'm going to get paid, I'm going to get paid. And she was like, well, yeah, but you got to do the movie for it. Like, nah. And she came up to me, and she said, um, you want to do a movie, Troy? And I said, yeah, I, I would like to. And um, she said, it can be anything. You, you can do it on anything. And I said, all right. So what I did was I told her, I'm going to tell her about my story. Um, so she helped me do it, and she helped me, like, um, get the pictures and stuff like that. And uh, one, I was in the top 10 out of 600 students around the world. But I, I don't, I don't, huh? I, I don't call it a loss, but a loss. But you know, a lot of people, you know, only three people win and they won a thousand dollars. And well, a lot of people liked it. And you know, um, doing that, I didn't get a chance to go anywhere. But you know, by people saying that, they wanted me to write my story. Um, Time Magazine. I mean, I think New York Times. And they wanted me to um, write a story. So what I did was, I think that was the fourth day. I had to, I was, yeah, that was the fourth day. And when I, I went home, I uh, was writing, writing, every day writing. I wrote a 25-page um, essay, and I really, like, tried to bring it down to a thesis. And um, I, I written it, and I lost again. Well, I don't call it a loss. I got a chance to travel to California, Stanford. And my teachers helped me get there, and they gave me money, and they you know, told me, whatever you do, keep going, keep doing what you're doing. So when I came back, I mean, well, I, t- I told, you know, I said a couple of things, and but I really didn't get a chance to talk. But when I came back, you know, um, my story, it was in a book, you know, and that was, that was around the time when Walter came and I met with him, which I'm glad I did, and he read my story, and, you know, I hooked up. He, he liked the story, and he told me, I know you're a writer, and I know you're really serious about it, but I want to see something else. So I showed him that I'm, a, you know, I'm dedicated, and I've uh, written something else. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I don't want you to think that I just happened to sit next to Troy. We all walked in. There's 25, 30. That was a seat. I don't want you to think this is like, okay, one person you can pull out. You had 30 people that day, right, Trojan? And a lot of them were coming up or going through... These are not anomalies. This is what America can do if we actually want to do it. And I almost feel bad making you be the guy on stage, but James could have come or any of these people could have come, and you would have seen what happens when we as a country decide to do what we should be doing, whether it's through College Track, Teach for America. And next time, maybe on Friday, I'll make others talk, but it's... You know, I just want to make everybody know it's not just like Troy's spectacular. It's like the thousand kids in college track are all spectacular. They are. Yeah. Let me open it up, if I may. 
Yeah, Stephen Adler. Well, it's privately funded, although we get uh, a little bit of government funding through 21st Century in New Orleans specifically. And uh, we we're looking to invest actually in a new building in the Bayview, and we may get government funding for that as well, and that would double our footprint in the Bayview in San Francisco. We have four centers currently in East Palo Alto where we started, and then uh, we replicated to Oakland the Bayview, and then New Orleans. Uh, So Troy's in our first class in New Orleans. They're rising juniors. Um, And so we get foundation, both large and small, and individual donors are the majority of our funders. Uh, And obviously, it's a limiting factor for scaling. Uh, We have a leadership pipeline that we've developed. We have great curriculum documentation. We've codified everything. Facilities are an issue that we want to always be housed in the neighborhoods where we serve the students. And so generally in those neighborhoods, it's very hard to find buildings that you could rent that could, that could handle 200 students. And so that's costly for us. And doing partnerships with the cities is essential so that that cost is taken care of. In New Orleans, we have a partnership with the National Urban League where they've provided the facility. They renovated a beautiful facility, and they also give us a contribution of 1500 per student. So that cost is, is half. It's 2500 per student. That kind of partnership is, is what will allow us to scale to other cities. Yeah, in the way back there. Uh, Just I'm shout it out, and I'll repeat. We decided not to do microphones to make it more intimate. On New Year's Eve, what God told me, he said, um, I'll give you knowledge. I'll give you wisdom. Don't look into temptation. I promise you. I'll fix the situation for you. I'll fix your mama problem, your daddy problem. And he did it. And what I did was study, 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 study. Right, right, right. I barely read. I studied a lot of words from my little brother because he couldn't read. And I don't know how it happened. I just started reading and writing. And, you know, I had a man, Joshua Hope, from College Track. He came over, and he talked with my parents, and he was like, how did that happen? And they told him, child, uh, number God. I mean, there's no other way I can explain. That's the true story, and that's how it went. And, you know, he was like, yeah, what? But it's living proof that that really happened, and that's how I did it. You know, I wouldn't come here to tell any lie. Huh? But you've, you're also a hard worker. So you apply yourself from early morning to late at night. And you're yeah. journaling and yeah. lots and lots of writing. You know, and there's just certain tools. I mean, we all, a computer really does help. And you hadn't had one, although you can use one in the afternoon's college, right? But we had extras here that brought one home. And you were telling me, even though it runs slow, that you're now going to what site to learn words? Um, dictionary.com. I, 
um, read a lot of books, mm-hmm. and what I do is I take the words out of the book. Sometimes I take the sentence and I go find the word, and I learn how to use it by reading the sentence over and over again. And I just started doing that, but it really works. And um, that's what I've been doing ever since I left here, which I've been studying words. It's just that I'm doing it differently now. I'm doing reading? it faster. And what are you reading? I'm reading The Lightning Thief. Well, I finished the book when I went back home. Now reading The Son of Masters. It's part two of the book, but mm-hmm. that's what I've been reading. And I figure if I read that, I can be a better writer. But I want to read um, Walter's book. It's about leaders. And I think, you know, that book would be really that's important. paid plug, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'll use it as a blurb on the paperback. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, uh, back there, and then I'll go up front. I'm sorry, did you have more to say? I didn't want to. Oh, that was about to say. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's Mr. Gray. Steve. 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 <laughs> um, so, could you tell us a little bit about your story? My story? Given that you're from New Orleans. Yeah. Same neighborhood Orleans. almost. Sort of, mostly. Yeah, but you same lower nine. Um, given the story and narrative that we heard, why are you here? Uh, you know, I would say it's my family and my parents, you know. Um, I mean, they're hard asses, and um, it's the truth. I mean, I, I went to both public and private schools in the city. Um, you know, there was, failure was just never, failure was never an option. I mean, you always had to be two and three and four times better than everyone else around me to, to satisfy them, basically, right? Um, and so they were, they've always been very actively engaged in every step of my academic and professional career. So I think that's fundamentally what happened. Um, ever since I was 10 years old, I wanted to be a journalist. And so they made sure I had every opportunity to make it happen, whether it was you know, summer programs you know, out of town or um, you know, working on the junior high school paper. Uh, they, they made me go to Howard, so I worked in the school paper there. Right? I mean, so, so pretty much it's been them pushing me the whole nine yards. I think that's key. You graduated from McMain? Graduated from McMain. Went to Wait. Newman for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll leave that aside. Yeah. Um, but McMain was then an Orleans... Uh, it was a... I don't magnet school for the Orleans Parish School. Yeah. But it's now a charter run by Tulane University, if I'm correct. Right. That's right. That's so right. we've taken every school, including McMain, which was good school, but saying, okay, we're going to get really smart people to run them as charters. Mm-hmm. And McMain is... And you'll be happy to know my father went to McMain <laughs> and Fort Jane. So. My dad went to Fort Yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yeah, Go so that's, I think it's fundamentally, it's, it's my parents. Basically. But it gets back to the notion of having one city again, that we all pull together. Absolutely. Hi, Lorraine. Um, you know, what you described with your program is what I experienced in the Denver Public Schools growing up. So what happened, and how do we turn this stuff around? Because the schools were open. <laughs> And I went to tons of after-school programs and was involved in a lot of different things. We also had field trips. I mean, all of those things. And what I'm finding is that schools have to make tough choices. They have limited budgets. I'm in the process of trying to help an elementary school figure out how to fund a music teacher, for God's sake. What happened, and what do we need to do to turn this around? Well, were you at um, the, the panel uh, where Mayor Reed was discussing what happened in Atlanta in his neighborhood? He said the same thing. Uh, rec centers have been shuttered. 
after-school opportunities have been cut. There's, there've been education cuts across the country for the last 20 years. So, so what do we expect? You know, it's um, we don't prioritize it as a nation. We don't fund it properly. We don't we don't hire, recruit, develop, train teachers and school leaders properly. And so we're now reaping the what we've sown. Uh, can we change it around? Absolutely. And I, and I think there, there are proof points in some excellent district public schools, magnet schools, charter schools, but they're not nearly enough. And so we need a collective national will to change this. Yeah, I'm sorry, right here. I know you had that kind of... If no. you could upscale, if you could increase the scale, do you fear a loss of quality? If you could in- increase the size substantially? Well, that's always that's always the the fear when you scale is that that you, you dilute the quality, um, not with the right leadership. Site based leadership is essential for us as it is for any school, and so as long as we have the right leaders, we actually have a program that can work. There's a lot of tailoring that happens um, depending on the needs of the underlying community. Part of what each center does is is tell students not only are they capable of achieving, achieving ap- academic scholarship, but they're immediately useful. And so they have to contribute to their community. So it could be through peer tutoring or through any kind of community service, service-based learning. Uh, so we need to make sure that whoever is leading each center has a deep connection to the community and to the students so that, so that they lead it properly. So, uh, you know, not that concerned as long as we can keep that pipeline Of all good. the problems we're facing, <laughs> the yeah. fact that we're scaling too fast isn't... Yeah, one. I'd like to have that problem. <laughs> uh, and the way back, uh, a hand, and I'm going to embarrass him, because Mike Johnson was in the next room many years ago, right after Katrina, with our Aspen Leaders Education Reform Leaders Program, part of our Aspen Global Leaders Network, in this building, when we pulled out a whiteboard, and I started pushing people ought to come to New Orleans if you're serious about th- turning thought into action. And Mike Johnson was mo- one of them, with Sarah Usden and many others, who then went down, John Schnoor, went down to New Orleans. My wife will not be surprised to know that he was in an auto accident with me driving in a parking lot of Tulane University after our first meeting down in New Orleans. Um, yeah. But the final intro of Mike is he's now, among other things, besides having started a charter school, a state senator from the state of Colorado who just two weeks ago got passed the greatest and most important education reform bill that helped uh, tie teacher uh, assessment and be part of the race to the top. So, boy, with that introduction, you you better have a short question, Senator. (laughs) I'll just start by saying the most important lesson I learned was Troy and about 150 other Troys I've met 
you know, uh, young men and women who you didn't know that if you really, really turned things around, somebody who knew two words would be a runner-up, at least, in a writing contest at some point and could make it. That you really can make a difference instead of just throwing up your hands. That's probably lesson one and lesson two and lesson three. You and I privately can talk about the lessons, you know, you know, I don't want to go into, which is it does help to have the unions disappear for a few years so that you can have schools stay open till 6 or 7 p.m. and so that you can bring in a whole core of new teachers that are tied to teaching. But I'd really stick with the lesson that I wasn't, and I must admit, I wasn't absolutely sure that if you totally turned around school and let people have choice, that there'd be kids like Troy saying, well, here's one reason to go to the math and science academy. Here's a reason for me to stay a leader in Gentilly. And here's what I'm going to do to be a great writer there. And that far exceeded my expectations of what impact of turning thought into action could be. Um, I'd I'd say something a little more specific, Mike, is that uh, leadership matters in all ways. So teaching as leadership and site-based leadership matters. And tying accountability to leadership is essential. And so a lot, bringing in the best and the brightest and bringing in education entrepreneurs who know exactly what they need to do, have the ability to hire and fire and assemble the team that will work to, to achieve their vision is essential. And so I think what we saw in New Orleans is that uh, bringing in charter schools in such a mass quantity like had happened and building up the human capital pipeline in the form of teachers and school leaders and um, superintendents both locally and at the state level were essential. So, so you have to get the governance structure right. You have to get the incentive line right because people will perform based on their incentives. And then you have to inspire those who, who are in the classrooms every day to actually believe that redemption and turnaround is possible. And when, when you have those ingredients, like we're seeing in many amazing breakthrough schools in New Orleans, you can see extraordinary results. Yes, sir. Yeah, but I'm not a Katrina diaspora. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been in New Orleans about six of the last eight weeks covering the oil spill. Um, and so I'm struck by how much the city in the region has rebounded, but I'm also struck by how much the demographics of the city have changed. And um, the city is much whiter, much younger, much wealthier, um, visibly healthier. It's a thinner city, right? I mean, which is another weird thing to deal with. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, I, I'm also a bit unease, uneasy with um, the pace of the demographic change because I think that with that will come a great deal of cultural loss that I think um, the country needs to be thinking about, right? Um, and it's a very frightening thing. Um, you know, I think we're, and in terms of just the, the 
there's a political vacuum right now, in, in a black political vacuum right now. I mean, there's hardly any bench of young, up-and-coming African-American leaders in a city. And that's also a very frightening prospect, too, right? Um, and that's something I'm not hearing people on the ground in New Orleans think about in a very substantive way. So. Mm-hmm. And for the question, uh, last question, yes. All right. Um, I was tap dancing on Decatur Street, and what happened was the police ran us, told us we can't be tapping on Decatur Street, what they told us so you know several times. So me and my friends, um, we left, we went um, left, and we turned the corner right there by this, this kind of park, and we went down the street. And you know, this lady was sitting down, and she called my name, and she was telling me. Um, who I am, what my uncle doing, what my grandmother doing, what my grandmother want, what my family want from me, what my family are doing, and what I'm about to do right now. She was telling me this. And you know my... Huh? Do you know who she was? No, I, I, don't, I don't know this lady. She, I know she was an old lady with gray hair. That's, that's all I knew. And, you know, I, I really did went back and try to find a lady. And my friend was telling me, um, man, that lady crazy. Man, that lady, something wrong with her. You know, I was like, no, 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 nothing wrong with this lady. You know, I, I don't know how this lady know me, but she's telling the truth. And, you know, you're like, all right, man, I'm, I'm going to go down the street. I'm going to meet you. And um, so the lady just sat down with me for like an hour or two and was just telling me, you know, all kind of things. And um, when we finished talking, what happened was she told me, um, make the decision before it's too late. I think on a note that shows that one person can make a difference... It is really astonishing. I really want to thank you, Troy. I want to thank you, Lorraine. Thank you, Steve. Um, 